0: Why is it so hard to take a good story and retell it well, Paul?
1: It's a good question. It's a, if it's a good story, it should be a good story no matter what. It should be a good story and there are certain elements of that story that need to be kept in there. But what elements are those? What are those elements? <laughs> <laughs>
0: what is sentence structure?
1: <laughs> We're going to be talking about all of that on this episode of Fan-
0: Pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all. <laughs> What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy Know-It-All. We are well into Daylight Savings Time now. I never remember if we're in Daylight Savings Time or if we've canceled Daylight Savings Time, like in the spring. Are we, are we? Oh no, stepping we're, into we're, it, in, we're Or are we canceling in, it? We are
1: in daylight I'm not a savings farmer. time now. Was it? Wasn't? Didn't we create this thing for farmers? <laughs> you know, honestly, I don't know. That that makes sense. Does somebody have you history know? on this? Although you would think that farmers wouldn't need daylight savings time, right? No, but because they do, they, so they, they can
0: they, plant the seeds and well, have but, the extra sunlight to do their yeah, work outside. But the
1: rooster crows. You get up with the dawn. You go to bed late, late, late at not night. All farmers have roosters. All farmers have roosters. It's not it's a law. true. It's not a no, law. No, it's a law.
0: I grew, up, I grew up going to my grandfather and uncle's farm in Nebraska all my entire childhood, and they had zero roosters.
1: Well, they were in a legal farming
0: operation then. <laughs> I mean, there's that's the only – No two ways <laughs> about it.
1: Yeah. either you know that or they were just trying to, to hide it from you? Did you have like a fear of roosters had, back in the day?
0: No, I love roosters. Really? I don't know. No, I do love roosters because I read that Walter Wongren Jr. book, The Book of the Dun Cow. That was Walter <laughs> Wongren
1: Jr.? Have you ever read this book? <laughs> no. It's a great I've book. Never even heard of, I've book, never even heard of the book. I've never even heard of the author. What is really? this? The no. Book
0: of the Dun Cow.
1: The Book of the Dun cow. <laughs> Have you ever seen um, – is it, is it a cow that's just done? No, no, no. It's, it's not just a cow. done. I'm it's it's done, says the it's
0: cow. It's D-U-N hyphen cow, but it has nothing actually to do with a cow at all. And all it has to do—the main character is this cocky, arrogant rooster named Chanticleer. 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 And so is this he, a? He ends up having this epic battle with a venomous snake. It's—I mean—it's really quite the epic story,
1: considering it's about a, a rooster. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, interesting. It, it's also interesting that the the rooster would be cocky, you know?
0: Right. No, I mean, it's very appropriate. I even, I mean, it's, I guess it's all, all fitting.
1: Yeah, all roosters are kind of, you know, it, they always strike you as having a certain attitude. You know, all the farms, all the legal farms that I've been on that have had roosters, the roosters have definitely been rather obnoxious, you know?
0: Right. And, I mean, that's that was Foghorn Leghorn. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, bah, bah, the way you're looking bah, bah. at me, I was like, do you even know who Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> <No>.
1: is? <laughs> I know all about okay, Foghorn Layhard. <laughs> I'm actually I'll say I say see I haven't seen it for a long time.
0: It, so. it has been a while since I've watched it, but yeah. I'm also I'm really surprised you haven't heard of the Book of the Dun Cow. Um, well, it's, see, it's loosely based. It's also loosely, especially because it's loosely based upon the beast fable of Chanticleer and the Fox, which is adapted from the story of the Nun's Priest Tale from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Well,
1: of course, I've heard of that.
0: Yeah, you're an English major. Yeah,
1: no, I'm I'm all up on that, but I don't know about these strange rooster snake battles that you talk about.
0: Well, and you know the interesting thing is, is I'm pretty sure there's an animated movie that is you know pretty similar to the
1: Book of the Yeah. No, honestly, I think the more you talk, the more I think that this is not some sort of obscure. Jake-like thing that's pulled from nowhere. This feels like it's a, like it's got its own Wikipedia. Page. I mean, it's an The Little It was prince. named.
0: It was named the New York Times best children's book of the year. When was this? In 1978. Uh, this is right the wheelhouse. Was, was already. You were ten.
1: I was ten, but see, I had already outgrown children's books by that time. <laughs> I was reading Chaucer by that time.
0: Oh, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. All right. <clears throat> well. How do we get onto rooster? <laughs> wow! Oh, daylight saving time. Welcome track. back, welcome back, guys. Welcome back. We're here. We're here. We're here with you every step of the way, um, even if we're not here with ourselves. <laughs> but this, but it's a good segue. It's a good segue. It is. Right? It is because we're talking about today. We're talking about. Um, Talking about nothing. This is a show about nothing. Very science-felt. We're felt talking
1: ass. about stories. Stories. We're talking yeah. about stories and the importance of um, how stories are retold, essentially, within the culture. Yes. And this sort of came about because I just recently saw A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. Disney's version of A Wrinkle in Time. And I saw Tomb Raider. And you saw Tomb Raider, and both of them are in essence. Uh these movies, these cinematic stories based on beloved other stories, right, right, famous for their presence in
0: other mediums,
1: yeah, yeah, um I actually, before I went to see a wrinkle in time, I reread the book. The last time I had read the book was when I was reading Chaucer when I was ten <laughs> and it was—I was really impressed on the reread on on what was in it. I mean, this— It holds up. Yeah, the Wrinkle in Time. Madeline Langle's Wrinkle in Time really holds up. It is—it's it is, uh, a book that's doing a lot of stuff. And one of the things that it does really well and really effectively is I think it weaves these Christian elements within the story. I mean, it quotes the Bible all throughout. It's probably more explicitly Christian in some ways than A Chronicles of Narnia. Which is um, saying something. Which is saying something because, you know, where, where C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia was all just sort of this, this allegory, this allegorical tale, essentially, where you had to sort of read between the lines. There's no reading between the lines here. You read the lines, <laughs> and there's Christianity in a wrinkle in time, which I didn't remember as a kid.
0: Um, because she did it so effectively, or just because you forgot?
1: Because I forgot, honestly, I totally forgot. I you remember... forgot about
0: that. You forgot about the dun cow. <laughs> no,
1: I remember. I never knew about the dun cow, <laughs> but I remember the big old. There was a huge old brain in Wrinklin' time. I remember that really well. I do. I do remember that. But there was a brain. There was a brain. So in the movie, spoiler alert, they take out the brain. You're essentially—they don't have the brain, actually. What? No, they don't. That's they, a little little Okay, I, I. Yeah, it, they, they. You could, you could. I forgotten it. so
0: many things about that book, but that's
1: the one thing. Yeah, one of two things the I brain. remember. Yeah. You remember the brain, and I always remembered like the the weird, creepy kids in the suburban area bouncing the yeah, balls, right? Right. So they kept the balls and the suburban area, but it sort of folds in on itself. Because they jettison the brain. Well, the brain becomes – they sort of go inside the brain essentially. So it becomes sort of this black, dark thing, Um, that that type of atmosphere. But there's no brain. I always just pictured this gigantic brain lying on a table somewhere. There's something
0: appropriately creepy about the physical manifestation of the brain.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: As much as we love the brain because it powers – Everything we do as humans when we see it it's it's a weird
1: looking thing it 's almost like the most alien thing in us well, it really is and and I think that there's some there's a huge there's a huge discomfort level when we see it because I think that when we think about what our brains do, you know the everything we think everything we feel there's there's parts of the brain that are are deeply involved in that, and so when you see it as this lump of flesh essentially. I think that there's something deeply psychologically jarring Absolutely. about that, you know, that this this is sort of a, a huge part of our essence, you know. And I think that we could get into a whole other discussion on the soul and all that kind of stuff. But the brain is a big deal, and when you see that when you see it outside of its natural housing, it's just weird. It is. So anyway, but that's gone. They they got rid of the brain, and they also got rid of the Christianity. Um, which I found really interesting. I had a had a chance to talk with uh, the producer for *A Wrinkle in Time*, um, and he his name is Jim Whitaker. He's a believer. He uh, he really tries to take projects that reflect his worldview. But but for whatever reason, he and others decided to that that Christianity was just not. It could be you know, a hard sell for a mass audience. And so they stripped it out. But my contention is that because the book was so explicitly Christian, because it's so much a part of of Madeline Langell's, you know, what she tries to do, um, removing that element wasn't just like stripping away tinsel from a Christmas tree. I mean, it was literally taking the heart of the book out. So you lose the brain literally yeah. and you lose the heart figuratively. And I think that that really did the movie a disservice. I think the movie was even as a story, I think it was less effective. It, yeah, because there's this there's a sense that
0: when we're adapting anything across a medium, you know, we we know that not everything can make it across. Right. Right. We know that there's limitations of each and every medium that we translate something into. Right. And so we accept that some things are going to go. But our, our hope – and I think most of the time when we get upset about adaptations, whether it's a book being turned into a movie or a video game being turned into a movie or a comic book being turned into a movie, it's losing the heart of what makes that character right. or the, the themes of that story resonant. Right. That's what connects us into these books, is the character and the themes. Everything else is window dressing. Right. Absolutely. And that's what it seems like, even though I haven't seen it yet, uh, though I did read the book years ago with uh, A Wrinkle in Time, is they like the fantastic elements, but really for Lengel, the fantastic elements and – many ways were window dressing and maybe that's putting – maybe that's doing them too much disservice. They work as a part of a narrative that carries these themes forward. Right, right. And when you take away those themes, they're
1: carrying nothing. Right, exactly. And so what's the point? What is the point? And I I think that 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 was – in a nutshell, the problem that I had with the book, it sort of becomes this pointless movie that's very visually stunning, but it loses its purpose. Let me just read I, – I just happen to have a copy that I brought along. Two copies. Called, no, this is this is. Oh, that's a separate book. Yeah, so this is Madeline Lengel's Walking on Water, which is a Reflections on Faith and Art, which oh, yeah. is just fascinating. And As I was reading last night, I just came across this passage that kind of describes, I think, why – the book works so well and the movie doesn't. She's, she writes about this. I learned that my feelings about art and my feelings about the creator of the universe are inseparable. To try to talk about art and about Christianity is for me one and the same thing. and It means attempting to share the meaning of my life, what gives it for me its tragedy and its glory. And I think that when you lose sight of that, the core of who Madeline Lengel is as a creator... I think that you do a disservice to her creation. Right. And we
0: seem to man all right. We we have this inherent distrust with Hollywood because they do this a lot. We I you know you I think we're tempted to say in a case like this they're stripping Christianity, you know, and so is this an attack on Christianity, right, right. is a censorship of Christianity is you know things like that.
1: Yeah, and I don't think that that was the case. But
0: but but we see this because we actually see this all over the place. Right. It's not just here. There's plenty of other books that have lost right that along the way, or video games that have lost that along the way. Where the, what what made it resonant with the audience that liked it in its original medium didn't make it. Right. Like it seems like it's the exception rather than the rule that yeah. something is translated well, right, even though we do it all the time. Almost every single thing we watch on, on the screen, whether it's a movie, often even TV shows, is somehow being adapted from right. another a story from another medium.
1: Right, yeah, and, and, and like you say, it's done all the time, and sometimes it can even be done well. I, I flash back to the Shining. Which, you know, Stephen King Terrible example
0: it. because it's awful in both mediums. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, but maybe a great example a future, because they translated
0: podcast. the awfulness of it, it really to the screen. Is,
1: it really is. It would have a whole bunch it of content is. caveats. But, but the, the Kubrick version, Stephen King famously hated it. Yeah. And it is a very different version. It became Kubrick's story as opposed to King's story. But Kubrick made – a viable story. Yeah, it need, maybe it need, had to change to exist on screen. Yeah, it, there's that's. I think that's a viable take, and I also think that that sometimes, if you have a very strong idea of this type of story that you wanted to to tell, if you said, "I want to take this and turn it into this because this is what really resonates with me," then I think that that sometimes you can. I mean, Disney's done it for centuries, right? It seems like they, right. they take these these fairy tales that said one thing and turn them into these lavish movies that that say something sometimes entirely different they're pretty effective stories, but when it comes to to this particular thing, I think that they just didn't understand that the story they didn't understand the original story right and so they didn't know how to translate i'm 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 really curious um, what in in the context of this conversation, how you felt about Tomb Raider. Yeah. I mean, Tomb Raider, just from – I haven't seen it. Um, just judging from the trailers, it feels like it's such a step beyond what we saw in the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raiders. Yeah. And – but my sense is, is that they're more reflective of the current game, Tomb Raider. Absolutely. I think the interesting thing that
0: um, I was thinking through after watching the Tomb Raider uh, screener was the fact that not only the – tomb, the Tomb Raider movie is based on the reboot of the Tomb Raider series. They, you know, of course, famously created Tomb Raider back in the '90s, right? Which I loved the game. uh, You know, very fantastical, very uh, over the top, not realistic at all. You know, it was meant to be sort of a fantasy world more than anything, and so the Tomb Raider movie, I think, like stayed true to that, even if it. even if it wasn't particularly good. Right. Uh, <laughs> which it wasn't.
1: But I mean Angelina Jolie at the time looked like this. Uh, she looked like a cartoon saw character in the game. She yeah. was
0: out she was over, you know, outsized and she fit yeah. she fit what that and, and so it's an interesting thing here because I would I would, uh because what we have is now a Tomb Raider reboot and a movie now based more on this Tomb Raider reboot rather mm. than the original. And what I think we see in both is that both stayed pretty true to the games that they were both of the movies based on both of the movies. So, you know, so the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider was you know trying to stick to you know kind of the tone and the, right. the outlandishness of the t- original Tomb Raider games. Yeah. Whereas this new Tomb Raider with Alicia or Alicia Vikander, however you want to say her name, um is very much lockstep with the reboot of the Tomb Raider mm-hmm. game, which is a lot more grounded. Even if it still has fantastical elements, it's grittier, it's, it's darker. It, you know, it's an origin story. We're getting to find out what, how, how did this tomb raiding action, you know, series, you know, how did this heroine become who she is? Yeah. And the movie does, uh, does the same thing how who what we see lara and the new tomb raider get her very first kill and it's an emotional moment it's actually a, a dark moment and we see it and it's upsetting you Yeah, know, even though it's in self-defense it's a it's a rough moment whereas back maybe throw back to the original oh, Tomb yeah. raider game and movie you're just shooting people are going down right and left yeah. and you just kind of move on there's not much emotional resonance to yeah. it and i think that was the difference here and
1: one of the things that that I think about as as I think through kind of the, the whole Tomb Raider genre, you know, both video games and the movies is I think that the change that we see from the Angel- Angelina Jolie versions of Tomb Raider to the modern incarnations also sort of expresses how video games themselves have changed, right? I mean, the the original tomb raider which i played incessantly that was my wife and i actually played through those games together like the first iterations of them you know they were they were very simplistic they were what video games were at the time and they were great for what they did but it seems like now video games are focused in much more and you've talked about this before on this podcast where they're much more focused on the story themselves and the action in the video games sort of augments the story that they want to tell. It's, it's become a much more mature form of storytelling, and, and arguably of art. And I think would it be fair to say that the the new Tomb Raider movie sort of reflects that iteration as well? How games have grown as an art form, and and that movies themselves, when they take when they're based on them, need to take them more seriously. I think it can, uh, but
0: it, it's almost giving it too much credit in that uh-huh. it's the movie that results is still just an action movie, right? And I don't mean that as an insult, right? Because, because it's actually, are... yeah, action movies can be great, and it's actually a really good action movie. It's not a bad action movie as many video game adaptation movies oh, have been, yeah. just terrible, yeah. You know, even though you'd think, and and so that's. That's kind of what I was thinking as I was watching this new Tomb Raider. Is what I think it does well is it doesn't get and maybe this is the reflection of the the um, maturity of the art form of the medium of video right. games, uh, or at least those yeah. a- adapting them in the movies. Is that they didn't get hung up on having to recreate all the action that you've seen in the video games. They do at times. Have these moments where you're thinking, oh, I could see this as a quick time event, or oh, this, you know, I can see this similarity to a video game, or you know, whatever. Those exist, but they're not stuck there. They're not. They they don't make a movie just to capture the action. They actually care about the character a little bit about mm-hmm. Lara Croft. She's not a sex symbol mm-hmm. the way I think the original Lara Croft right. was. You know, where she this her proportions fantasy, yeah, essentially exactly. Alicia Vickiner, she's obviously an athletic, you know, and she's very, you know, ripped. She's not homely. She's not homely. But they are not – they never once ogle – yeah. her body you see it it's right. there it's she's a very physical character right. but they're not dressing her scantily they're not just trying to find ways to you know use the camera to ogle her body they're actually getting to know her and her relationship with her departed father right. and what you know, the fears that she's wrestling with, and as a young woman, mm-hmm. you know, coming into her own, yeah, and the dangers of this island that are beating her up. Like, there's this sense of the island that she ultimately is on is her, you know, is a literal physical representation of her hero's trials, and it's beating her up along the way. And the movie wants to tell that story, mm-hmm. and that's why it succeeds. It's not focused on the action. It's not focused on the just these physical accoutrements like yeah. a Wrinkle in Time where it's let's show the great graphics and, you know, fantasy elements. It's let's actually care about this character.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and I think when we when we look at when we look at stories that translate well from their source material, I think that there's a certain Like I think what you're describing with Tomb Raider, I think that there's a certain respect for the source material. I think there's a certain sense that they get it. They get something critical to the story. I mean I think that that's one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings movies worked as well as they did. Peter Jackson was a fan. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the Marvel Universe has worked really well. And and actually the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a great example of what we're talking about. If – from what I understand, I'm no – I'm no comic book expert, but the comic book experts that I talked with say that there are things that are definitely changed within the cinematic universe. But the thing is, is that the the overall um, story runner Kevin Feige, I believe is his name. He is a comic book fan. He understands these characters, and he knows what makes the characters important and resonant even if he changes certain things within those realms he knows what critically has to be there and i think just understanding these properties is critical to telling a story that works for the fans of those properties you know it
0: it's true so i think that brings us to possibly the most crucial question in this conversation which is where is that line yeah because you can have, I think you know the the Lord of the Rings example is perfect for this question, because Peter Jackson is obviously a huge fan of the universe that J.R.R. Tolkien created, you know, and and what we saw in Lord of the Rings was an excellent, in my opinion, one of the best, if if not the best book to movie adaptation of all time. It was
1: incredible. It uh, was incredible.
0: However, Peter Jackson and team are also responsible for a fairly uh unfortunate book adaptation <laughs> in the hobbit movies <laughs> and that is also correct um, <laughs> and so what what happened yeah you know what what, what was the difference yeah. when they went to make lord of the rings and they went to make the hobbit you have you had most of the same core team as far as you had Peter Jackson and yeah. Philippa Boyens and I can't remember the name of the other person. But the same team that created the masterpieces of the Lord of the Rings movies come into The Hobbit and it turns into this huge
1: bloated mess. Well, you know, and this is a really fascinating question actually because I was – even as I mentioned Lord of the Rings, Hobbit was in the back of my <laughs> mind because it, of course it has to. It haunts this conversation, right? You know that Peter Jackson takes the source material very seriously, and that may be part of the problem. It gets back to the core of what the story is about. When, my take is that The Hobbit, when it was first written by J.R.R. Tolkien, it was a standalone book. Lord of the Rings may have been somewhere in the back of, of, of Tolkien's mind, um, but it was a children's book. It was a light adventure story. Delightful in, in in how it created this whole new world and it was really the first I think it was really the first manifestation of of classic fantasy that we know today um, but it was it was a light story that that wasn't encumbered by a lot of backstory now as as Tolkien grew more familiar with this world that he was creating. It's sort of like a George Lucas type of a thing, right? Yeah. Where Star Wars, the original A New Hope, was this nice, simple, straightforward story and then the world got more complex and and created problems down the road. I think that the same thing could be said for Middle Earth where um, all of a sudden he built this universe which was it worked so well in Lord of the Rings but when you try to stuff The Hobbit into that world... And you take out the elements from the Cimmerillion. Boy, this is the most geeky conversation we've go. ever had. we we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we pull in those elements from the Cimmerillion, which fluffed up, you know, gave depth and breadth and power or whatever to to The Hobbit that wasn't originally there when Tolkien originally wrote the book. It's the Cimmerillion stuff that, that Jackson took to make this three-part monstrosity that became The, the Hobbit on film. He understood and this is sort of the irony. He I think he understood the story that Tolkien eventually wanted to tell. Yeah. But I don't think he understood the story that Tolkien actually told with the Hobbit. Well is it that he
0: didn't understand it or is it is it the burden of knowledge? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So that he like I, I would I would wager that if you sat down and talked to Peter Jackson one-on-one, let's say before the movies are made, I bet he understands the Hobbit mm-hmm. if you if you really nail it down. But when you take that step back and you say, I have this knowledge of now this entire universe that Tolkien didn't have, and I ha- and it almost then becomes, oh, so now maybe I have this responsibility to tie them in together. Yeah. Like, and we put this burden, we have this burden of knowledge kind of subconsciously of because I know this, I need to incorporate this. Yeah. Now, was that his motivation or was I, I, I honestly wonder this. And I don't know, maybe you guys know if Peter Jackson has talked about this. I wonder if he did want to make just a Hobbit movie. And, but then there's this pressure of, well, you know, there is all this – again, the burden right. of knowledge. So right. maybe the burden of knowledge was on the side of somebody else who said, but there's all this other material. Couldn't you turn it into a three-part series? We could make a ton of money. We could make a ton of money and it does get back to money, doesn't it? <laughs> and and so maybe it was like, OK, well, maybe I could do it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could take The Hobbit and all this other source material from the Silmarillion and elsewhere And maybe I could turn that into a trilogy and it becomes this audacious goal Um, and the problem that then you have is is the opposite of the burden of knowledge is that the audience by and large, only a small percentage of the audience knows all this other stuff that you're trying to bring in. And so there, because you're calling it The Hobbit, they're comparing it directly to this self-contained story and that's what they expect. Yeah. I wonder, what what if they had titled it differently? What if, what if they had called it something like, this is too boring, so I apologize for not being able to think of a title on the spot, but, you know, the arcane history of Middle Earth, you know, <laughs> but that's a terrible title. But what if we just were expecting Lord of the Rings prequels and we know The Hobbit you know stuff is going to fit in and maybe the hobbit will be one piece but would then the hobbit was one movie but then these other two pieces were their own and we we weren't expecting them to be the hobbit yeah would that would we be would I be okay with those movies mm-hmm. in that sense because oh yeah I never really got into the silmarillion stuff but now it's going to be expanded in visual format let's go there yeah i don't know but because we were expecting the hobbit yeah did we kind of get like what is all this stuff? What is all tell this the story? Stuff?
1: Yeah, no, and, it, and I think that that just it just gets to be frustrating. And again, the Hobbit, it, I think Hobbit suffers from the same problems that A Wrinkle in Time does, in that it it really forgot the kind of story that it wanted to tell. When when you look back at the movies, the things that you've seen in your life, Jake, what do you think? What do you think? Number one has. done? done really well in in taking a story a beloved story translating on screen or or somewhere else for that matter and what has done it really poorly yeah well
0: i i think i just talked about the one for me it's lord of the rings yeah because and and for me it was direct comparison it wasn't like in the case of um a Wrinkle in Time or whenever I see it, if I haven't read the book, it's been 20 years since right. I read the book. For me, it was – I actually read all three Lord of the Rings books before – like w- literally within months of the release of Ooh. The Fellowship of the Ring as a uh, 12-year-old boy. Uh, there I was. I binged the books. This was before we had Netflix binging. Couldn't binge back in those days <laughs> on Netflix. You had to binge on books. Uh Now I feel really old. Uh, (laughs) But I binge the books and I watched the movie. And from the casting to, you know, decisions to make to cut out some of the more poetic elements that we know there's a poetic richness to Tolkien's stuff that doesn't translate well into movies. I'm so
1: glad they lost
0: that. You know, that's, 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 that's almost, interestingly enough, that's almost part of the problem with. The hobbit mm-hmm. is that he kind of put some of that back into the hobbit, right uh, right like and at first, you're like, this is kind of cool, but then it's causing it to really drag uh, I yeah, love no. the Dwarves voices, but um, anyways <laughs> uh, so he he did such a good job bringing the pacing mm-hmm. to a movie mindset, to a cinematic mindset to say we're not get, we can't get bogged down. I don't have a viewer's attention. For that, so I've got to keep the story moving. I've got to keep things moving along, and so I thought. But he did that without losing sight of what made each. He spent time with the characters, right? Instead, right. And so those movies are still long, but that's because he wa- he he knew we had to connect with the characters. We had to connect with their purpose and where they fit into this grand story. Um, as far as an example of where it was. Uh, unfortunate there's a lot of examples of that but the one that's in my head right now is actually the adaptation of the voyage of the Don treader
1: oh interesting uh,
0: you know yeah. one of the chronicles of narnia books yeah. um because to me the voyage of the Don treader isn't necessarily the best overall book in right. that whole series however it has some of the most interesting um has some of the most interesting questions that it poses to us as readers. Even if some of the store other stories are tighter or more action packed, the Voyage of the Don Treader really is an exploration of our humanity. Yeah. You know, through each of the, so the characters and the tests and the trials that they uh, undergo along the way. And so there's some really interesting things that C. S. Lewis was able to explore mm-hmm. about our humanity and our sin nature and our relationships with one another. And out of the entire Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite scene, hands down, bar none, is in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where um, Eustace has been turned into a dragon, and uh, by his greed, mm-hmm. and he's and he is f- thinks he's trapped in this, and then he has this encounter with Aslan. And, he, and Eustace is trying to scrape the scales off of his skin. And Aslan says, go bathe yourself in this water. And, and he gets in the water and he's trying to tear these scales off. And the more he tears, they're falling off, but they're never going away. And then Aslan says, can I try? Will you let me? And Eustace in his desperation says, yes. And Aslan starts tearing at him with his claws. And C.S. Lewis's description of the freedom – and the pain but the relief of the deep cleansing power of grace visualized through Aslan's claws is is seriously incredible. Like it's one of the most powerful things in all of literature to me at least. Um, and the movie version didn't just miss that. It missed almost every single one along the way. It just viewed every stop of this voyage of the Don Treader as just a location instead of as – a test of someone's humanity and sin nature the way that Lewis had them in the books. And that was really disappointing.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole Chronicles of Narnia movie series is an interesting study. Um, I would be interested to watch Voyage of the Dawn Treader again. Um, My own review, from what I remember of my own review of it, I kind of liked it. But I think I also said that – I liked it because you almost have to set aside the book to enjoy it. <laughs> okay, You know, it's it's one of those types of things. And so it, I
0: almost had two personal feelings attached to the book <laughs> since I didn't want to set it aside.
1: Well, but I don't want to discount that because I think that, that what you talk about is really – it's really, really valid. And I think that one of the problems that that the series had in the beginning in some ways that it was too – slavishly <laughs> sorry siri siri <laughs> siri's siri, siri's like what's up paul I'm here what What do you need <laughs> so um it was it was almost too slavish an adaptation of the original book you know yeah. lion the witch in the wardrobe the the movie followed the book from what i remember fairly pretty well. yeah i was gonna say lion Witch in the wardrobe was but i think that that movies because they are stories in and of themselves the the storytellers of that movie need to bring parts of themselves into that to make it resonate with us and i think that 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 was why um of the witch in the wardrobe left me cold don trader probably had the opposite problem where it definitely changed the book quite a bit and it may have lost some essential elements from that book um, but it was a unique story, and I thought that it, it at least it felt like it was sort of coming into its own at that point as a series, even though it was the least successful movie of the bunch. You and know? Where It Died. Where It Died. They're talking about making a Silver Chair movie, which I'm super excited about potentially and super terrified of too because Silver Chair is my favorite of the series. So Pretty great. Yeah. Um, the, the, probably the
0: best self-contained story maybe outside of – uh the No I I think I can say this, I think, and my opinion is the horse and this boy. Mm. Such a great self contained story in and of itself. Yeah,
1: I think we need to do a Narnia podcast. We might have to do a Narnia podcast <laughs> when the Silver Chair comes out. Yeah.
0: Um no, but I think what, what we're the problem here is that when we're adapting a story, whether it's video game, comic, or book, into a movie, uh, is that you have some really big elements That are stumbling blocks and I don't think you're – almost never can you please everybody because you have the original intent of the creator in the original medium. Then you have the personal take of the makers of the adaptation and then you have the demands of the new medium and what they do and do not allow. Right. And then you have the money aspect, right? Exactly. <laughs> what, how how are we? You know, what can what kind of money can we get out of this thing? Yeah. And yeah. what do we need to do? Who do we need to cast? What do we need to cut? What do we need to include to to please the audience that wants to pay ten plus dollars a ticket? Yeah. To go see this, and that's a lot. I mean, and and I think, but I think out of all of those, it's those personal takes that are probably the biggest stumbling block because. Money and casting and the demands of the medium, those all exist right? when you make anything. Right. That, right that's all there. But the unique thing that you have when making adaptations is the very personal nature of each of our approaches to the original story. Yeah. Because we can read the exact same book, A Wrinkle in Time, and come away with very different feelings and emotions and takeaways.
1: Absolutely. That's and, the beauty of story, yeah. right? I mean, I think that that's that's absolutely right. I think that we all <sighs> storytelling is is a very odd and interactive experience. I think. I mean, it's not just the person telling the story; it's the person receiving the story, and and that brings with it its own power and resonance. I think that that's one of the reasons why you know not everybody loves the exact same book is because no matter how well it's told, it has to touch something. Very personally in your heart uh, to have it resonate and and so there's there's a weird alchemy when it comes to, to retelling these stories in these adaptations um, I think that one of the things that that has done it fairly well is actually the Harry Potter mm. movies um, I don't would not say that they're world class movies, but I think that they they take what I think is a really incredible series of books, understands the spirit of those books really well and brings with it its own personal twist. I mean yeah. I think that there, there is a power in the movies that both reflects the books and is unique to the movies and that's that's a fairly remarkable achievement I think. It is. And with that, it's time to say what's your thoughts?
0: We want to know what you think. What was your favorite? adaptation of a book comic book graphic novel video game into a movie or vice versa
1: yeah and what i mean this is really important stuff too i want to know i want to know what adaptation totally crushed you the adaptation that you were so excited for and you watched it and you were horrified by what you saw
0: so jump on the twitter and tell paul his handle is (laughs) at At ac AC paul Paul. and mine is at jake underscore roberson we both want to know and commiserate with you on that but without further ado it's time for the most least important thing Welcome inside the most. Least important thing. It's the way we love to wrap up every single show. It's where <laughs> we get overly dramatic about things that don't matter at all. <laughs> you know. Or maybe get a little under dramatic about things that are super important. Or am I mixing that up? Maybe we get serious about the right things and lighthearted about the perfect things.
1: See, I think you should do a whole podcast in that voice.
0: In a world where Jake does the entire podcast in this voice, I'll finish the show just like this. Paul, oh what do you got for us today?
1: So do you think that the United States, by and large, is a happy place to be? A happy take, place to be.
0: I will take the Fifth Amendment for 500. <laughs> so- For I, me, Yes. For many others, no.
1: Apparently. Apparently, Jake, you would be so much happier if you lived in Finland.
0: That is very close to my homeland. I'm (laughs) Swedish by
1: You're Swedish?
0: Yeah, mostly. I've got a lot of other stuff like Native American and some Dutch. We don't need to know about –
1: no, no, no. We don't need to know.
0: But mostly Swedish and they're right up there next to the
1: Finns. No, and, and Sweden's a pretty happy place too. But so, Finland's
0: the happiest place on earth.
1: Finland's the happiest place on earth. It is uh, they just did a new study. Finland was number 1 in terms of happiness. Uh, that is followed by Norway, Denmark, Iceland, and Switzerland. They're all like in the same area. What's and, going on? <laughs> they get a lot of snow and I think all of those places snow just makes people Why happy. Why are they so happy? Uh, you Do know, they self-report why? <laughs> there's there's a lot of issues with that apparently, and and apparently we as Americans have a lot of issues too. We were way down at 18th, which is down from previous studies where we were 13th in 2016 and 14th in 2017. Um, And here's what the New York Times says, why we're not as happy as we could be. Laid on us. Uh, Though the economy is generally strong and per capita income is high, it ranks poorly on social measures, life expectancy has declined, suicide suicide rates have risen, the opioid crisis has worsened, inequality has grown, and confidence in government has fallen.
0: Now I'm super depressed.
1: (laughs) You are. In a world
0: (laughs) where I have to go take a nap.
1: So so I think that the next – I actually think the next uh, podcast we do, we should go to Finland to do it.
0: I'm all on board. Who's paying? <laughs> all
1: That's right.
0: Safe. My most least important thing is why is SNL struggling to be funny? Mm. There's this interesting piece in The Atlantic called The Toothlessness of Saturday Night you know, Live's political just... humor. <laughs> Hold on. Let me say that. The toothlessness of Saturday Night Live's political humor. One would think a show known to be left leaning would have plenty of fodder with the current administration to be quite funny, and at times they have been. But it's almost as if it's too easy (laughs) and they don't have to be creative anymore, Mm. says David Sims (laughs) on The Atlantic. But this is an interesting question. What is it that makes SNL historically funny and why are they having trouble finding it now, Paul?
1: You know, I haven't watched SNL in 10 years. I'm
0: asking the wrong guy. Apparently. I'm asking
1: you're asking the wrong guy. I have watched clips, but the clips that I watch are pretty funny actually.
0: They they have flashes in the pan these days. But they struggle with the consistency. But
1: here's the here's the real question. How many people actually watch a full episode of, of SNL anymore?
0: I gotta think it's very few.
1: I mean, seriously, because all the stuff that you want is on YouTube. You yeah. you get to watch the skits that you want and you don't have to watch all the filler. It seems like SNL is one of those shows that is both primed for this age of, you know, clippy YouTube internet stuff that we have and completely um, a ratings killer because of that that same dynamic, right?
0: In a sense it hasn't adapted to the current mediums the way certain other shows like Late Night with Jimmy Fallon has Fallon knows he's a clip show and so he structures himself accordingly
1: I think all those Late Night guys understand that
0: They're trying, Fallon does it best But SNL is still struggling. Oh, I would argue with that. SNL is struggling. And I think it's because it's too easy. They're not being forced to be creative. And so they don't know what to do with themselves. Well,
1: yes. And this could lead us into a lot of conversations that I would probably get fired for. But I do think that in some ways, some ways the current political climate it does SNL's work for it. It really does where some of the things that we see going on I, I have actually I just saw this this thing that's a friend of mine sent me Dennis Rodman is now you know offering his help to mediate between Donald Trump and, uh, and Kim Jong-un when they go to North Korea because he knows more about North Korea than any other person in the United States apparently and that is something that 15 years ago, would have been SNL, an SNL skit. It's straight out of idiocracy. <laughs> now, Dennis Rodman now is the U.S. Like, ambassador to North Korea. Now, now it seems like, you know, it could happen. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> All
0: right, Denny, you're in. Get off the bench.
1: So, yeah.
0: <coughs> it is it's a little too this easy. voice is killing me <laughs> yeah,
1: i can imagine it's killing me too <laughs>
0: and with that we come to an end this has been pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all i'm jake roberson you can hit me up on the twitter at, at jake underscore roberson. this is paul
1: ac At AC Paul on Twitter. I can't make my voice go down the
0: floor. It's really painful. So I'm excited to wrap up this show. With that, I'll catch you guys on the flip side. Bye.
1: You know, one one so adaptation get... that did not work really well? Huh. I was just reading about Bram Stoker's Dracula mm. that was translated into, you know, the movie was translated onto um, a Sega game. Jonathan Harker <laughs> just <a> kicks, <laughs> he essentially kicks bats, he kicks cats, he kicks vampires, knocks the head off of one. It was kind of funny. Anyway, go ahead.